And if you are remaining up here with us this morning, I'd invite you to take a Bible out and uh, turn to the book of 1 John. And we've been working through 1 John together. So if you're visiting, uh, welcome. You're not directly in the middle of things, but you're kind of near the middle of things. This morning, 1 John, right, go to the end, turn back a few books, and you'll come across 1 John. There's a Bible in front of you if you need it. Um, when Andy and I were talking, I offered him uh, the chance to preach. He declined. All right? What? You can preach. You guess. And uh, then he spoke, and I told Rob, well, I'm only speaking for an hour this morning, so we should still be okay. So I'm just kidding. won't be an hour. All right? Um, but we want to get into God's Word this morning, and um, I was reminded even just singing that song together with you that this, uh, right, the local church is so unique. This is not a spectator sport. Uh, I was able, very fortunate, to go this last week down to, uh, to watch the DAA basketball tournament. Uh, Kim sent me there for my birthday. It was great. And uh, that's just a thing, right? We're going to cheer and watch teams win and lose. Here, this is not a spectator sport called the local church. And, and this is important, right? We sing together, and it's not words we're singing about and to a God who is gracious and loving and the creator, the sustainer of all things. And we sit and we listen to, uh, we pray together, we listen to God's word together, that we collectively together and greater maturity in Christ. So this is important. So um, I'm glad you're here. I'm excited for what God has in store the rest of our time together uh, and what he's already done with us this morning. In case you've missed it, or let me just kind of recap where we are here. We're in 1 John chapter 2 this morning, the latter part of it. And we've been working through this. And what we've come to see, I think, one of the big pieces here is that John, I mean, he's, he's very sharp with his words. I think John likes to, to draw lines in the sand. And maybe it is that we appreciate that kind of speech or that kind of boundaries in our life, what's in or what's out, right? Do this or don't do this. We appreciate that. But it may have been that some of us haven't appreciated it. When John says things, we don't feel like a, a mandate should be given. We like to kind of live our lives how we want to live them. Perhaps we feel like it's uncomfortable, like our freedom's being taken away. And, and really what I think that means is ultimately we want to be in control. And so if John says, hey, this is what it looks like to follow Christ, that may press somewhere that's not comfortable for us. And that may not have been sitting well so far. You know, John has made statements just back in verse 10 of chapter 2. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. That's a pretty sharp line in the sand that John just drew. That a life of love toward your fellow Christian is reflective of living with Christ. And to not have that is not to reflect living for Christ. Why does that even matter? Because when we understand how God loves us and showed that in sending of his son, then our lives should then be turned and lived in reflection of that same kind of love. In fact, later on in 1 John, John will say, right, we can love because he first loved us. So the idea of, of loving your brother, which then I think does flow into those outside the family of God as well, but John says, look, this is what it means to look and to live and to follow after Jesus. You've got to love 
the people next to you that are walking alongside of you, your brothers and sisters in the Lord. It didn't say like, did it? You've got to tolerate. I can tolerate a lot of stuff. It says you've got to love. That's hard. But John says, look, to follow him, this is what it means. Part of what it looks like, practically speaking. He said, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And we find ourselves in that moment having to wrestle through some hard things in our lives if we take those words seriously. That our life cannot have a heart and a mind and a soul that's drawn to a greater attraction than God himself. That the things around us, right, including our sports, our jobs, our families, even ourselves, right, Jesus is supposed to get way more attention, more of our heart and more of our mind, more of our hope and more of our joy than all those things. Yes, even yourself. That's a hard line in the sand, isn't it? Why would John say that? Because he knows that only Jesus can fully deliver on that faction that you're seeking after. That only Jesus can fulfill when you're trying to drop everything else will fulfill you. So John's warning of don't love the world is look, because that won't actually give you what you think it's going to give you. You can find the perfect job. And eventually one of two things will happen. You will get fired. That's just the reality. In that process, probably it's not going to be so glorious. There's going to be hard days and bad days. So if that's where your joy is found, that will be bankrupt eventually. Because look, be fulfilled in Jesus. Last week he said, let what you heard from the beginning, verse 24 here, chapter 2, abide in you. If what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and the Father. John's got concerns that amidst those declaring Jesus, was the Christ, or others claiming he wasn't. And some are being led away by that. So John wants the gospel to remain in the life of those he's writing to. Why? So that they would look for hope. That the gospel is that source of hope on those rough days. On the hard things in life. That it would remain, it would abide, it would take up residence in you. Because the gospel reminds us, that the good days, right, that God may be pleased with those things, the good days we have and the good things we do, the gospel reminds us, but ultimately we still need Jesus. And on those bad days, when life hasn't gone according to what we thought, right, the gospel reminder that he alone is a source of hope and salvation. You see, all of these things, all of John's writings so far, his imploring, his asking, his reminding, and even his warnings are important. And it's important that they're received in the right way. See, John is writing with his listeners in mind, not just to hear his own thoughts echoed. Like, this isn't John's personal journal, but John is writing for a purpose. All right, let's see if we can jog some of your brains who have been here for a while with us, right? right we, we think John's vocation was a what, right? After Christ ascends to heaven, John was a, a pastor, so we think he did, right? And so he's likely writing here to who? Well, we don't know exactly, but best guess would be that he's writing to people that he knows and he loves and he cares for. He's writing because he has their best in mind. Now, he is writing largely that they would be strengthened and encouraged and remain fervent in their hope and their trust of Jesus that they would cling to him as their Messiah, as their source of salvation and hope today, and then live in a manner that's reflective of that change happening in their lives. 
And that's an important reminder for us today. Because as we enter into this portion that we're going to look at in a few minutes, it may feel like just another example of ways that you need to do more. A ways that, that you better strive harder. That you better fix your problems and you better get your act together. Like I think if we, if we look at it like, like John's just trying to weigh and press down on, on us right now, we're going to come away with kind of some bitterness towards John potentially. But if, but if he actually has our best interest in mind, that then maybe we'll hear his words, I think, in the proper light and how they're supposed to be heard. See, there's a real tension for you and for me. And as long as we live on earth, sin will have its effect in our life in some way, shape, or form. It has its grips into everything. Even the most tranquil moment can be robbed of that peace and serenity that it could give. The birth of a new child, that all of a sudden the doctor says, hold on, things aren't okay. That euphoric moment of just new life, right, right in front of you, and the marvel mystery of it all can be robbed in a second by words that can reshape what happens at that point forward. There is tension in life. And because we live in this tense existence on earth, Man, that means that, that we, if we're, if we're claiming Jesus today, if that's what you are, you, right? you claim Christ, meaning you put your hope and trust in him and his life and death and resurrection for the covenant and forgiveness of your sins, then how do we do this? How do we work in that tension of brokenness yet being redeemed by our heavenly Father? And John's trying to help us in that. John's trying to help us learn how to navigate our sin, God's holiness, his commands, and the Spirit's work in our lives. So as we read, listen, John is he is not just telling you one more thing of something to do today. Yes, there's part of what John will write and we'll listen to that it is instruction. But it's so very important. Because John writes all things in the past we're in today because he dearly loves the gospel. He dearly loves the gospel as well as those he's writing to. And he wants to see them love Jesus more. He wants to see them live their lives to their fullest in Christ and have ultimate glory with eternity in heaven. Look, and I want those same things for you and for me. It's an important reminder that John's words matter and they're important, and they're given for our good. And so we have to read them that way. All that just to set up our passage this morning. 1 John chapter 2, we're going to look at verses, chapter 2, verse 28, through chapter 3, verse 10. So if you have a Bible, follow along, it'll be on the screen for you as well. This is God's word. It says, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him, and shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. 
sin is lawlessness. You know that when he appeared, you know, sorry, you know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes sin is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And again, he begins this section with this endearing term, right? Little children. It's not patronizing, but it's an authentic, heartfelt expression that John has to them. He's writing to them because he cares for them, just like a parent would care for a child. And again, it's important because of this posture that he has, right? Because of this relationship that he has, John desperately wants those who he's writing to to remain in Christ. He wants them to be helped in their endeavor to pursue Jesus above all other things. Right? What he states in verse 8 of chapter 2 really is his tone for his writing. He said, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears we have confidence and not shrink back in shame from his coming. See, John's hope is that those who are following Christ would live a life not yoked by fear, but a life that's rooted in Jesus, a hope that's rooted in Christ, a hope that's rooted in the resurrection of Jesus and the glory that awaits in eternity. See, ultimately, there is to be, I think, throughout this whole portion of Scripture, a large overtone of assurance from John. Like John's concern is that those listening would come to the end of their days with the return of Christ right, and be fully confident of their salvation. That's the tone, I believe, that, that kind of overlays this. That for those trusting in Jesus, for them, a life of angst and a fear of death is not a concern that we need to have. We know, the large in part, death is one of the largest fear points in people's lives. Why is that? What's it like? What's the last experience as breath leaves your lungs and your heart stops beating for the very last time? It's fear-evoking because it's unknown. Yes, we have writings and some testimonies of personal experiences that seem to come back and what they went through and all. But the reality is they came back. So even that's a different experience than, than what we would say death and its finality is. John's hope is, is that these writings, that those listening and those understanding would understand what a life in Christ looks like. That they would be aware that that life in Christ is, is not just meant for while there's breath in your lungs, but it's meant to how you look at how you view death and beyond. He wants them to be sound in their teaching and to understand that these things must constantly point us back to Jesus. And so because John's heart is a pastor's heart, because we know that he walked with Jesus himself, and because we know and understand that he wants what's best for those listening, he too should perk up. 
we too should take a moment to listen to what John has to say this morning. And here's three things I think we'll hear. I think we'll hear warnings. I think we'll hear encouragements. And I think we'll hear truth. I think we'll hear warning, encouragements, and truth this morning. I think John says some hard things that we have to wrestle with individually and collectively. What truth does John tell us today? Chapter 3, verse 1 reminds us, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. What is John trying to say here is, look, if you're claiming Christ today, you're a Christian today, there is going to be friction between those that know Jesus and those that don't. There's going to be friction. There's going to be a rubbing that's not always palatable. It's not always comfortable. And I'm not so sure our goal should be to make it palatable or comfortable. See, there's friction because we who are in Christ will see life differently. We will see eternity very differently. We will use the word hope very differently. Right? And, and so John's writing says, look, it's good for you to know this. And by the way, far before right, culture or, or someone might reject you because of following Christ, it did not follow Jesus either. The world rejected him the same. He wants them to know that truth. Like, that's a reality, and you're not foolish. If you've been right, claiming to follow Christ for any sort of time, you should know by now that what culture says is true and what the scriptures say is true. At times they might line up, but for the most part, they tend to be butting heads. And in some cases, actually what they're both claiming, you can't say, well, maybe. I had a fascinating conversation this week with somebody right, who was just trying to say, it seems like all these kind of things called religions just kind of say the same thing. And I tried to explain, well, actually, I think a little differently. I think that most major religions are not compatible. And why is that? Just from a fundamental view, they all claim to be right. They all claim to be right. If all are right, how is that going to work? They all claim different things in their rightness. Look, to follow Jesus, there's going to be friction in our lives. I mean, John's not writing here to his audience anything they don't know. If you've walked with Jesus at all, this is not something you don't know. But it's a truth. It's a truthful reminder that's good for us to remember. Because I think all our goal is, how do we just kind of, kind of blend in? I don't want to ripple waves. And I'm not saying our goal should be divisive. You know, our, our goal shouldn't be, how do we throw a rock into the pond and cause the biggest ripple in the culture around us? But I am saying, shocked when the world doesn't love Jesus. Don't be shocked. Truths that God gives us and what he claims about you or what he claims about life get pushed back against. Right, don't be shocked about that. And John wants his people to know that. Hence his, don't love the world. Don't love that more than you love Jesus. Culture will claim that those around you can give you pure joy and satisfaction. If they can't do it, you can buy it on Amazon. And get it in two days and one if you're super impatient. 
that everything around you, well, what does that make you? It makes you just a user of everything around you. It's consumerism. And all those things cannot satisfy you. The fullest extent seeking. Jesus alone. That continues to walk out. And in that truth, I think he has encouragement for us. Look, it may be friction, but take heart. And he goes right into verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. When Christ returns at the resurrection, we are just like him. So John says, look, don't be shocked when everything around you that you're trying to trust in and find hope in and find value in is not affirming those things in your life, that only Jesus is doing that. And when you live a life that's passionately rooted in the gospel, don't be shocked when that's pressed back against pretty hard. Look, take heart. It won't always be this way, he says. Let me encourage you, he says, that one day Christ is coming back. That one day when he returns, Man, there is a hope that's come to fruition. That when Christ returns, those hard things and those broken things will be restored. Look, take encouragement in that. And so maybe for you, life today isn't going according to plan. I recognize, I'm no fool, I've lived a fairly charmed life. And and I'm not sure what exactly I did to deserve that, because I'm pretty sure, right, that it just doesn't work that way if I looked at all my choices and bad choices and those sort of things. Right? My life is, is pretty charm. Right? I'm the youngest of four. That's a sweet place to be because you watch four, three of the people ahead of you make bad decisions. You just learn what to avoid. I mean, the first person that I had die who was really close to me in life was my grandmother. She was 95. I was in my 30s. I haven't had to walk that out. Like, what is it like to lose someone? The snap of a moment? The screech of brakes or the pull of a gun? Like, I haven't had to wrestle through that instant tragedy. I've got four boys who are healthy. I've got a wife, and that's by God's grace. That statement alone is God's grace. I have a wife. And then who she is is even more of God's grace. I have a dog. It seems to be pretty cool. And a hamster. Oh, yeah, I forgot. We have a hamster. Charmed. And so for all intents and purposes, I, I might have a hard time, like, I, I don't know if I feel that much friction in my life. And, and yet, you know what? Man, my life is broken. That please don't ever buy, right, this somehow false image that pastors don't have, right, the same struggle of life, of sin, and, and things are trying to be, give over to Jesus more and more each day. Like, I get probably just as mad as you do when someone cuts me off, all right, and I'm driving, I don't like when people are late for meetings, and I don't like when I'm running late to meet with them. These things irritate me and stir up pride within me that I'm better than you. Right? Maybe you don't know the past they struggle with. I want you to just be on the same page with me today. And so when I, and I, I hear John say, look, one day Jesus is going to come back. That's encouragement to me. Because even though how charm my life has been, comparatively speaking, there's been hard days. I, mean, I don't know if Andy remembers this, but like when Andy was, was pastoring in Melrose, I remember going just back and forth in an email with him, like, how do you wrestle through, like, just 
what you, I can only describe really is, is like spiritual depression, right? So how do you work through that? Right? He was able to kind of just help me and give me some thoughts on that, and, right? Man, I look forward to the day where that's not a concern. <laughs> and that's only satisfied. It only happens when Christ returns. So I feel like John's right. look, here's some truth. Like, life is hard. Even when you try to pursue Christ, you're trying to do all that you can to become more like Jesus. It's going to be hard, but take hope because Christ is going to come again. He's going to set it all good, and we're going to be in, in glory face-to-face with our Savior. So I think he gives us truth. He gives us an encouragement, and he says, look, in the meantime, let me give you some warnings. Let me give you warnings. Chapter 3, verse 4, he says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Verse 6, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Verse 8, The practice of sinning is of the devil. Verse 9, Born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seeds abide in him. So John's saying, look, here's the reality, here's the future, and in the meantime, I need you to look at sin very clearly in your life. What is sin? Just a quick, broad definition. Anything that's contrary to the commands, nature, and purpose of who God is. Any commands he gives us, what doesn't coincide with his nature and his purposes. That's sin. So here's what I know about sin. I know what Scripture declares that all have sinned, we've all fallen short of God's glory. And even practice speaking, I know we've all fallen short of God's perfect standard. Okay, that's just the reality. Don't, right? We don't need to, to pretend like, not me. If God's perfect, I'm pretty sure none of us has totally crushed that one. And so we, we hear this, this warning here, right? And that warning could create some angst. Like, here goes John again, just trying to press down on me. John, let me live my life. Let me do what I want to do. Look, John has your best in mind when he tells you these warnings. It's so important to hear that overtone, that, that John's desire right here and this concern about sin taking root and home in your life is really built up out of encouragement and strengthening. John doesn't want your life or the life of the follower of Jesus to be rooted in sin because sin and godliness do not coexist. See, by giving truth, right back in verse 1, our lives are to be marked by Jesus. Right? They're to be marked by him. He says we're called children of God. Like our lives should have the aroma of Jesus, the flavor of Jesus. When you kind of drive down in the west end here of Portsmouth, right, certain times of day, you know that Port City coffee is roasting coffee. You know it's them. It smells like Port City coffee smells. You go into it. You come out smelling like it. I know it's not white heron. Right? I know it's them. John says, look, your life ought to have the aroma of Jesus. Like, it's to reflect him. And this warning reminds us that that sin is not the aroma of Jesus. That we are to be marked as different. That as friction arises, we should not pursue sin over godliness. But no, his caution here is, look, sin cannot have home in your life. But truth reminds us, again, that the world rejected Jesus. 
They couldn't make sense of him. It struggled to understand who he was and what he claimed to be. Therefore, it was hard. Because it, was, it is hard and was hard, remember, our lives will look differently. It will cause friction, but that is not our future. Our future is eternity and glory because of Christ. That even when suffering encourages, look, be encouraged that even though we might suffer, it won't always be this way. There will be a day when Christ will return, sin and his brokenness will not have a place, and death and sorrow will be destroyed. A day when those fully in Christ are fully restored, and the friction will be no more. But in the meantime, listen up, be watchful, and be vigilant. Primarily be vigilant over yourself. That those in Jesus cannot have sin as its master. Like those who claim Christ right now in this room and throughout the globe cannot have a master called Jesus and sin mastering their lives. What does that mean? A habitual, ongoing pattern sin in your life is to be a huge concern for you today. See, John's language is hard and it's drastic, but it's for a reason. Because he knows that sin in the life of the believer is not a joking matter. It's to be wrestled with, to be thought through, and to be worked out in our lives at a very deep level, both individually and then in community together. So I think John's concern here is is very clear. Look, be watchful over yourself, that your life is to reflect Christ. And so you, if you sunken to allow sin just to run rampant in your life, to take up residence, then John's warning is for you today. That that type of life, if that's what you're choosing to get after, look, I'm not so sure you're choosing to get after Jesus then. No one born of God, God's seed abides in him. Listen very clearly. This is not John's up-tempo kind of halftime. 12, 15, in the NCAA tournament time, and you're a number 15, you play a number 10. That coach is going to say, look, just try harder, guys. Chip away, little by little, but try harder, work harder, get after it. That's not, I don't think, John's tenor here. That's not what John's, the overtone of what he's trying to say. I think John's warning is very clear. That if we're loving sin more than we are loving Jesus, we've got to evaluate our lives and ask ourselves some hard questions. And those hard questions are, is my life fully committed to Christ? And that answer ought to be a yes or a no. Yeah, I think so. No, yes or no. We should ask ourselves, why do I love sin? Why do I allow it to be present? What am I looking for that sin to fulfill in my life? Because I think that how we answer those questions, it will ultimately reveal our relationship with Christ and where it's at. And that may range from not really there, actually, to struggling and so on. The greatest fear of most pastors who preach Jesus is that there are those who sit Sunday after Sunday after Sunday who think they know the gospel of Jesus Christ and trust him as, as their savior, yet their life looks nothing. 
And what I mean by that is it's, it's a life that's not birthed out of being reborn by the gospel of Jesus. It's, it's not lived. It's not fruit that's being shown. Listen, John's continued theme concern here is that those in Christ would simply remain faithful to Jesus. John's expectation is not perfection. So that's a rub now, isn't it? Whoever goes on sins of the devil, so hold on. If it's, if it's not perfection, then what is it? And just remind you, back in verse 1 of chapter 2, John said this, My little children, I am writing these things to you. You may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And look, if sin is creeping in, if it is a struggle, if you do give in to that struggle, look, we have one who's stepped in for us, and that one is Jesus. What John got habitual sin habits that have taken deep root in our lives, and that's concerning. That's concerning. Struggling, okay. But when we've become numb to the struggle, we need to be concerned about that. Because then sin kind of takes up residence in our lives. And sin and the devil and God are not going to coexist very well together. See, when this happens, when we struggle, right, John wants us to turn to him, to turn to Jesus. He wants us to return right back to him. Look, God already knows your struggle. So if you're ashamed that you kind of self-impose on yourself, relax. Return back to Jesus. Why does John want all this to happen? Why do you want all this to take place? Why the truth? Why the encouragement? Why the warning? Verse 28 tells us, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. John wants this to be taken very seriously so that we can have confidence and not be nervous or scared or cower at the idea of Jesus coming back. Like ultimately, John wants you and he wants me to live without fear. He does not want you to have fear of death. Why not? Because his blood has covered your sin, has been applied to you when you have authentically trusted the good news of the gospel. Death is not the winner. We do not have to fear death because the reality is, in spite of that fact that you think you're going to be 95 when you die or 110, that bus might come much sooner than you think. But even that doesn't have to be a fearful thing. Even that doesn't have to cause concern for us today. Secondly, we don't have to fear the return of Christ When we lived in pursuit of Jesus, there's no fear of Christ coming back tomorrow. We're secure because of the gospel. We're secure because of Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. In our lives, if we sought to understand him more, we would continue to seek to live as he's called us to live, and we're pursuing total joy and satisfaction that can only be found in Jesus. Those are affirmations that the gospel is really abiding in us. Listen, we'll finish with this. Fear is a terrible thing to have. Fear is crippling. 
Fear can stop people from performing even the simplest of tasks. Right? In extreme cases, fear will stop people from being willing to go outside their house. Why? Because the what-ifs are just too great. See, John knows that sin is part of life on planet Earth. But it should not be our master. And it should not take up residence in the follower of Jesus. John writes today to encourage us to evaluate our own lives. That we wouldn't live a life of fear that if Christ would come back today, we're like, I'm not really sure. Like, no, I'm, 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 I'm trying to get rid of sin, not so I can just show how good I am to God, but because I want to be more like Jesus, man. Because I'm excited for his return. And so when John says, look, sin can't be part of your life and daily existence, that you shouldn't just be coddling sin, hoping it won't bite back. It's going to bite back, and it's going to bite hard. How do we know if sin's taking up residence in our life? You've got to look at God's word. You've got to look at your life and press the truth of Scripture into your life to read it, to study it, to understand it. And if we've got sin in our lives that we're keeping there, we have to ask the question, why? What do we think that sin's going to deliver more than Jesus can? Look, John's line in the sand is very clear today for us. But but he's doing it to be encouraging. He wants to draw the line of sand to encourage you to pursue Jesus. To encourage you that, look, even though there might be sin and brokenness in your life, it won't always be this way. That you don't have to fear the end of all things. You don't have to fear when, when breath leaves your lungs the last time. You don't have to fear when Christ turns. If we abide in the gospel and take our full hope in Jesus Christ, man, fear does not have a home within us. Listen, again and again and again, I would encourage you, you and I have got to press Jesus into our lives. We've got to give our sin and our brokenness and our frailty over to Jesus to let your life be given in pursuit of knowing more and more of Jesus. And then just as John encourages, eagerly await the return of Christ. Because we're confident that even though we might struggle at times, that sin is not allowed to take up residence, and that space is already given over to Jesus. When you are in Christ, your greatest joy is made complete. Because God of kings and the Lord of lords. And that even when you struggle, when we turn back to Jesus, he is gracious enough to welcome us again. And listen. I think I said I'll end with this about five minutes ago, but I will end with this. Jesus wants you to succeed in this area. Like, Jesus wants you to, to get rid of sin. Like, he wants to walk alongside you in this. This is not you. You're not Rocky. It's not you versus the world right now. This is you with Jesus trying to live for God's glory and for the good of those around us that they might come to know Christ as well. How do we do that? And we take on more and more of Jesus in our lives. We, we, we weave him into life today. We don't live in fear. But we say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. God, thank you for just your grace this morning. And your mercy. And Father, would you remind us that even in our struggle, even in our frailty, Father, that, that because of you, sin does not have to have the victory.
Father, I pray that we would not walk away with our heads looking down at our feet this morning thinking, well, he's got to try harder. There may be some work for us to do. That is true. But Father, would we also rest that we're not doing that alone, that you are walking alongside us in that endeavor to become more like Christ, to look more like Jesus, to have more the aroma of Jesus in all that we say and do. And God, we pray that you would accomplish these things for your glory and for our good. Amen.